Hi, I'm Amanda Lippman. I'm Faz Shakir. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Every week, we'll try to answer one big question in politics. Our guests this week are Jennifer Bates, an Amazon warehouse employee in Bessemer, Alabama, who has been one of the leading voices in the push to unionize there, and Joshua Brewer, a union organizer with the retail, wholesale, and department store union who has been working with Jennifer and her co-workers in Bessemer. As I mentioned before, we'll have one big question for every podcast. And this big question that we have today is, how do you go up against the biggest, most powerful company in America and when? How do you organize against them? Before we get into the interview, I want to pick your brain a little bit fast because you've actually been down to Bessemer with Bernie. For a campaign strategist like me, union elections seem wildly complicated. You know, there's a very small number of people who can vote and a really relatively long number of time for them to cast their ballots. And there's some obvious tension here. They're both voting for their self-interest but also at great risk to their livelihood. You know, for the people who are pro-union, there could be real repercussions if their effort fails. How stressful is that environment? I think that when you're talking about workers who are trying to organize against very large, powerful employers, you're always worried about your job. You're always worried about you're going to be fired and whether the plant is going to close down if you do it. Those are the kinds of fears that you're operating against. As you know well, Amanda, mm-hmm. you know, the strongest power in politics tends to be fear, mm-hmm. right? And you can just evoke some fear and you can repress the vote. And that is obviously what a lot of these workers are up against. Mm-hmm. That plant opened essentially in March of 2020. And so it has had this experience of living only through COVID, which means they have seen a warehouse that hasn't treated workers well, has used them to churn out incredible profits. And meanwhile, a number of those employees have gotten sick, transferred COVID to each other. And as one worker told me when I went down there with Senator Sanders, you know, when it came Christmas time, they were wondering, is Amazon going to do something nice for us Mm. since we've all worked pretty damn hard? And a woman told us, you know what they gave us? They said, here's a $10 coupon for a turkey. No joke. And that was what they got for Thanksgiving and for Christmas. And you talk about a company that's making hundreds of billions of dollars. Here you go. $10 for a turkey. What's your own personal experience with unionizations and unions in America? Oh, very little. I have never been a member of a union. I've never worked in a unionized workplace. But I have worked with so many candidates for whom unions and working with unions was their entry point into elected office. They started organizing their coworkers or they were part of a union at their job. And that gave them insight into what leadership looked like and then eventually got them into running for office themselves. The thing I really struggle with, and Faz, I'm curious if you have an answer for this, is there a good faith argument against unions? You know, I think that the argument that has now become embedded within American psyche and why we have a decline of unionizations is that big business and just business in general, in order to flourish, needs the least impediments possible. I mean, you use the word impediment, and it's like, impediments, that's people. That's people's, you know, day-to-day happiness. That's their joy. That's their ability to make a good living and then go home to their family or their dreams, such as they are. It is really, I think, part of a larger problem about the dehumanization of the worker. Dehumanization is the central issue. You know, we'll hear from Jennifer Bates, you know, her boss is a computer. She swipes the screen and logs in, can't talk to somebody if she needs to leave and go get her daughter because she's sick at school, right? I mean, who's she going to talk to? Mm-hmm. That person isn't there. 
I think you're absolutely right about the dehumanization. If they win in Bessemer, if they're able to unionize this warehouse, obviously for them, they then take the next step of starting to negotiate the union contract. What happens with other Amazon workplaces? Do they take the next step too, seeing that it's possible? Stuart Applebaum, who is the head of the Retail Workers Union that's been organizing these Amazon workers, he said that they have received 1,000 inquiries Mm. from across the country of people who want to organize their Amazon warehouses. And I think you're going to see flowers blooming all over the country on this one. Not just Amazon delivery drivers or Amazon warehouse workers. You're going to see Google employees, Tesla employees, Walmart employees. I think if you look at the polling on this, people want unions. They often just aren't sure how to go about the process, how easy it might be, what steps they have to take. But when somebody pushes, like a Jennifer Bates, and starts to get the ball rolling, there are a lot of people out there who want to join unions and want to follow. Faz, I got to ask you something I've grappled with a lot over the last year, especially is, is it ethical for me to keep ordering stuff off Amazon? Like, how do I balance this decision? I don't know. The thing I keep grappling with is like, Amazon's very convenient and it also helps people like Jennifer have jobs. Is that true? Is that rationalization? How do you handle this? I do not proclaim to be an ethicist on this, but I will tell you a little bit about how I think about it. It comes a little bit from my own experience from Bernie's campaign, right? Is that Mm -hmm. you advocate for changes in society Mm -hmm. and yet you live in society. Mm -hmm. So people would often say, oh, you want Medicare for all, but yet you have private insurance. Like, well, tell me when I can get Medicare for all. Is that available? It's not? Well, then I have to live in society and take what is being offered to me. So I don't fault people who are feeling like you've got to use Amazon's services. Obviously, I would urge people to think about, is there another way to support small businesses and small business entrepreneurs? But if you have to use Amazon, you have to use Amazon. My point is, I'm sure you agree with it, Amanda, is that those of us who want to advocate for improving society should not be criticized merely for having to work in society and function within society, but Mm -hmm. we can still maintain operating society while advocating for something better. That's the whole point of what we're trying to do. There's only just doing the best you can and trying to make it better. That's right. Let's play our conversation with Jennifer Bates, an Amazon worker working to organize, and Joshua Brewer, the director of the organizing for the union. Joshua, Jennifer, welcome to the Battleground Podcast. You are our first guest ever for our new Battleground Podcast. Thank you. It's an honor. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us here. Joshua, can you explain to me in very simple terms the step from deciding we need a union to an election? Sure. So if I'm a worker at, say, a shop that has 100 employees at it, what I've got to first do is reach out to a local union, do my research, find a good one that's led by workers, and get engaged with them. You get what's called authorization cards, and those cards are what signals to the federal government that you want to have an election at your workplace. And so you want to get about 50% of the workplace signed up on those cards, because ultimately it's going to take 50% of the workplace plus one to win a union election. And so federally required 30% of the workforce has to have those cards signed before you can have an election. And so that part of the process goes pretty quick. You get workers signed up educate them about the union. You file what's called a petition to the federal government that kicks off the election process. Generally, that's a three to four week process where each party is given the opportunity to kind of share their side. 
one big flaw of United States labor law is that the union does not get access to all of these employees' information until that last three-week stretch there before the vote, which gives us very limited time to contact a lot of workers. But you have about a three-week election time, and then workers vote. It's a secret election. It'll either be done by mail or at the workplace. It's a simple yes or no vote. So yes, we want union representation, or no, we do not want a union. And if the workers vote yes by a majority, so if 50 workers vote and 26 vote yes, then they win a union at that workplace and they start to bargain a contract with the employer. Can you explain how the counting actually is working at this point in time? I know like people were sent their ballots and they mail them in. How does the counting work? Sure. So the process we're going through right now is what's called just clearing the ballots. And so essentially what that is, is there's a master list of eligible voters. And as these ballots come through, Amazon and the union has an opportunity to get the name of the person that voted just to make sure that they didn't make the eligibility to actually vote. So if they were to have like supervisory status, then the union would say, look, they're not supposed to be in the union or in the unit to vote and vice versa. If there was someone that wasn't on the list, Amazon could certainly say, you know, hey, look, they weren't supposed to vote. That's the process we're in now. And so they're not actually counting the ballots because it is a secret election. So they're just actually going through the names of those that have voted and making sure that they were eligible to vote. And so with 5,800 workers, what is normally a relatively easy process has turned into a very long and drawn out process. And also, you know, Amazon is intent on continuing to try to subvert that process. So they're intentionally dragging it out as well. Jennifer. Give me a sense of what that process is like as an organizer. You're essentially a lead organizer. How do you even begin this process of figuring out who you're going to go to talk to and what you're going to talk to them about in order to persuade them to yes? I often talk about telling them not to focus on what you have now. You know, not to focus on what you're getting now, but think about long term. Because with Amazon, you don't get another raise after three years. What happens? The economy fluctuates and the prices go up. So if you don't have a raise within the next 20 years, then you may not be able to take care of the things you need to take care of. What about your safety? You know, a lot of things, your job security. Talked about asking them, have you seen some of your coworkers get fired? And a lot of them say, you know what? Yes, this this happened. You know, if, if a union was there, we would have had an opportunity to protect that person or make sure that they showed evidence to make sure that their firing them or trying to get rid of them wasn't, you know, unfair. Give me a sense of growing up. How do you feel like you landed here? What are some of those events in life that made you feel like, I understand that as an employee of Amazon, I deserve better? Give me a sense of what some of the life experiences are that you've had that you feel like put you in this position to say not only be a leader, but also know what you deserve and demand. I could say where I started. I remember when I was 13 years old, I remember working in an okra field. My mother's cousin had a field of okra. So during the summertime, he would take some of the children in the neighborhood who wanted to go, other relatives, and, you know, it's this little summer job for us. But it was then where I understood work, breaks, lunch, and pay. And that was my first time working, and my first legal job was at Hardy's. And from that point on, I began to work. And I think growing up, I kind of was kind of to myself a lot, but... Even though I had friends, I always questioned a lot of stuff. 
And I never took things at face value. If you told me something, I wanted to research it. If it was something that struck my interest, I dig and did just like a tree. You can look around the tree and find something, but I was the one who wanted to go up under the dirt and really find out, you know, what's under there. So I've worked a lot of different positions. I've worked with youth, assistant manager. I've been administrative assistant. So motivational speaker, uh, worked in ministry. So a lot of things. I love people. And I think that kind of molded me for this position here. Joshua, you also have a little bit of ministry in your background, do you not? I do. Yeah, so I, mean, I guess I'll take the same question. Actually, I don't talk about this much, but for me, it was a recovery program like 10 years ago. I was just young, just never left college in my mind, I guess, and stayed there too long. And uh, just experienced people really sort of giving of themselves when they didn't have to, I think, for the first time in my life and just kind of understanding. And then I stayed around there and did some serving for about six months there and then went on and served with youth for a few years and spent some time in Honduras. And I just think through those experiences, I I really woke up to a world that it's not about me and that I actually feel the most peace and the most purpose when I'm serving other people. Why that lent its way to work, I think my father was automotive. He was part of the General Motors crash in Michigan. I watched as 30 years of his life was taken away. The cars were pulled out the driveway. We lived on a lake house. We had a solid middle-class life and put bankrupt and the whole thing. You know, he wasn't being stingy. He was willing to take half. He couldn't find work. And, um, you know, I think just understanding that we're in a broken system. You know, my parents have no money to retire on. My wife's family has similar struggles. And I think we've lost what it means to take care of our own. And so for me, a part of the ministry is looking out. And I think that's really how I ended up here. But when you find yourself in a place where you recognize that a handful of people really can make a very large difference if they get loud enough, I think you find agency over your life and you realize that, you know, I can actually have a pretty good purpose here and try my best to help people. And so um, I think me and Jennifer connected on that pretty early. We both come from similar faith backgrounds, but, you know, either way, Regardless of what your personal faith is, once you kind of grab onto this idea that we're connected and that we should be helping out each other, I think it'll bring you to a better place in life. Battleground's going to take a very quick break to play a few ads. Hope you like them. Then stick around for more with Jennifer Bates and Joshua Brewer. Welcome back to Battleground. Joshua, I want to go through the campaign and talk about some of the moments. Obviously, I remember March 1st was a moment that was big when the president of the United States decided to say something in support of the workers. And it was midpoint of the campaign, remember? And uh, you'll remember well that Amazon was urging people to vote before March 1. That's right. Because they were trying to get people in with a no vote. And then obviously the president coming in on March 1 was pretty important and symbolic. Walk me through some of the critical moments that have occurred during the course of this campaign, the ups and downs, if you will. Sure. There's a couple main points. I think number one was October 20th. That's the day that we had planned to go public. 
had very much worked to keep it a secret until then. And so, you know, we launched with the website, with different banners, with phone numbers that you could text sign to this number and you could sign an authorization card over your phone. We had videos that you could text watch to this number and see our trailer and our hype video to kind of start the campaign. Really just trying to be creative to get people engaged. It's COVID. We had to think about the fact that it was going to be very difficult to get people in large groups and that also that workers don't work very close to each other. They're very isolated. And so for us, it was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so we didn't actually leave the gates for the first 62 days at all. And there was four gates. And so that was quite an operation in itself, just getting everybody bathroom breaks and food and warm drinks. And so that was the initial card signing campaign. We went through that in about 60 days signed up around 3,000 Amazon workers and Amazon workers themselves signed up workers. We met in bars and restaurants where activists would hand us 200 cards. Actually, it's like activists that I had just done work with uh, months previous to that tearing down statues in Birmingham that didn't even work at Amazon. So it's pretty impressive, actually. They were a lot of community organizing that happened. And so that took us right to the holidays, filed a petition for election. We had to file quick the way Amazon's turnover is. You're either going to sign up about 100 a day or you can't keep up with them. It's really a challenge. And so we filed for a petition. Uh, they gave us an election date and that started. And really the, the initial voting began early February. And I'll tell you, if it's not for February votes, we win this election four to one. Mm. It's not even close at this point. But to your point, March 1st is where we really... There at the end of February, early March, really began to grab the country's attention and really get that kind of momentum. And I think what it did for the workers at Amazon is it showed them that, like Amazon initially tried to flex their power and authority over the workers. And it was essentially, you know, if you get this union, we're going to take your benefits. We're going to take your wages and we might just leave town and you might just not even have a job. And that's really the messaging that they put out. And so for early February, late February, there was a lot of fear a lot of reservation in the warehouse. And I think once the president weighed in, along with, look, we had community organizations, people that drove down from Oregon and New York and Boston that have been here. We have over 100 volunteers that have been here for over six weeks, staying in Airbnbs that have canvassed and knocked doors. And so really it felt like everything at once, the president weighed in, which was incredibly important, I think, for the workforce there. And then to see the community kind of rising up at the same time in, in support of them, you know, and then look, mid-March, Black Lives Matter endorsed the campaign, which was a, a large moment, I think, for labor and social justice to twine those two fights together. It should have happened a long time ago. And so I think that also added a lot more momentum to the campaign to where, you know, now I think workers, they feel tricked. They feel that Amazon lied to them. They feel misled. Even going through the vote, we're seeing a tremendous amount of people that turned in two ballots hoping that their second ballot would be counted. Unfortunately, that's not the case. But we're seeing now this incredible amount of momentum. I mean, the warehouse is completely pro-union at this point. And I just think it just took that amount of time coming out of those captive meetings and hearing that real solidarity from the president. You know, when he said, you know, supervisors should not be intimidating, full stop, I think that spoke to workers that literally that day had just been intimidated by their supervisor about what they were doing with the union. You know, to feel that support, I think, is definitely a huge factor in the momentum that we feel now. But there's so many things to list. I really can't pull it all together for you. But just the solidarity from the entire world, as well as the local community, I think, is what did the number to bring us to where we're at now. 
Um, Jennifer, can you give a sense what a day in the life is like at the warehouse right now? Right now, uh, everybody's at the edge of their seats. <laughs> uh, I'm going, <laughs> going into work. <laughs> People are really getting tired. Mm. You know, they're waiting every day I go in. What do we have any results yet? You know, they need to come on with the come on, you know, <laughs> I was like, we don't have anything yet. May, may take another week or so, but as soon as we find out, you all will know. So it's a lot of questions and people are excited, you know. What is a, maybe before the union organizing began, what was a day in the life like? How has it changed? How has it changed? Um, I think before people were more angry. And I think right now people have hope that, you know, we can have a change. I, I spoke to a young man right before I left and I didn't even know that he voted yes. <laughs> but he said a lot of things need to be changed. He was young, probably in his early 20s. So it was a lot of disgruntled, but now... Since we've gone through this election and organization, people are excited that a change is coming one way or another. Jennifer, how about some lessons for the next Jennifer Bates out there? What would you impart to that individual? Some of the lessons is to have a good relationship with the people that you work with. As Josh said, to listen to what they're saying. Get to know the facility that you're working in. Make sure you have core issues uh, that's going on that need to be fixed. Don't be afraid to speak out and contact someone, but make sure you have a solid team that's going to work with you. Um, a, another good thing is get some education about the union organization so that you're able to talk to those who don't understand or don't know early on for us. And also for us is to let them know that even though we didn't know that Amazon was coming with the classes and the, uh, the anti-union busting, to be aware that the company really doesn't have your best interest at heart. If they try to hire a union busting uh, group, that they're not protecting you from the union, they're protecting themselves from you. Jennifer, you said one of the advice you would give to someone is not to be afraid. So I actually have a two-part question for you. One, have you been afraid? Have you been afraid at any point in this process? And then two, being a union organizer within the company is a political role. Would you consider this your first sort of entry point into politics? Were you political before this? Well, first, yes, I was. I was. I think I was more nervous, and in the beginning, I was kind of afraid. You know, <laughs> yeah. You you don't know what's gonna happen. You know, you don't know if Amazon is gonna attack you, embarrass you. But at one point, I said, "What the heck?" You know, because some of the people weren't even sure who the union organization was. They actually thought it was the Biden Harris campaign out there, hmm. and even thought that they were scammers, according to Amazon. So for us, we really had to take a bold step and really had to come out and say, hey, it's not them. They didn't come for us. We contacted them because it was a group of us. So when the, most of the uh, employees understood that, okay, these are our people and we share every day. The employees there look at us like we're real leaders. A guy told me today, he said, you know what? You come to work like you're a union rep already, <laughs> you know? So being nervous and afraid in the beginning, yes. But then once we stepped out, there was no turning back. Mm. I believe in completing something that you start and going into a, a political role beforehand. I've never done that. <laughs> I, I do have to say, though, as a vouch for Jennifer, 
I don't even know if you remember this, Jennifer, but we, we were leaving Cracker Barrel mm. before we went public. This was back in September. And you told me, you said, you know, Josh, I've always wanted to potentially get involved in politics. Oh, yep. <laughs> and that was long before anyone knew who Jennifer Bates was. I'll tell you that much. Uh, and so <laughs> we're going to need you around for the shop floor and for this union thing. But ultimately, we can't keep her to ourselves. I really think Jennifer's a leader. I think she's inspired a lot of people. You know, I think she represents also thousands of workers that are like her in Bessemer that have also stood up. And so uh, it's pretty incredible. Yes, to what Josh just said, it was my sister and my mom who always told me that. (laughs) (laughs) That you should be in politics. Yeah, and I remember telling him that, yeah. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Jennifer Bates and Joshua Brewer shortly. Welcome back to Battleground. Joshua, in what way is this different than other organizing efforts you've worked on? It feels like this is special. Is that right? Yeah, it is. It's a time and place. It's a time and place for our country. I think ultimately we lit a match and then it just took off. And I think that is related to the time and place our country's in. You know, I think we recognize that there's real systemic issues in the black community nationwide particularly in the South, where we look at the highest levels of poverty, the highest levels of unemployment in that community. And I think for people to feel a level of empowerment, maybe not even locally, maybe it's not even that conservative Alabama is supporting of us, but that the country by and large as a whole is supportive of us and they see our pain and they hear us. I think that this is a natural extension. I think, again, you know, it was two months before I was counting authorization cards we were pulling down statues with Toyota pickup trucks and, you know, that needed to be torn down five, ten years ago. And so for us, it was like when everybody was so shocked, you know, this has been something that's been building in, in this area of the South for years now. And so, you know, it really was just a natural extension of that. And so I think it is different. But I also think for the country, they're concerned Amazon is way too big. They're way too powerful. They have their hands and roots in in nearly everything from media to retail to warehousing to web hosting to everything. They're pitting local governments against each other in ways that we've never seen before. They're completely ignoring federal labor law, just throwing it right back in their face and laughing at it. They're criticizing senators on Twitter. I mean, it's a real level of power that they have. I mean, they say that money is power. Right. And I think we can all probably agree that there's some truth to that. If Amazon's the richest company that ever existed, it begs the point that they might be the most powerful entity to ever exist. And so that concerns people. And I think it should. And so I think um, to see workers in the South stand up like this, I think, has inspired people. And it was time. I think it'll continue from here. This is maybe a counterfactual you can't answer, but after having spent the last year for so many people so dependent on a service like Amazon for deliveries and groceries in many ways, prescriptions, all those things, do you think that this would have happened without the pandemic of the year prior? You know, it's an interesting question. I think I think it does. I think, again, back to the time and place, I think the fight for social justice for systemic change started before the pandemic. I think certainly everything has been exasperated by the pandemic. I think Jeff Bezos's profits certainly have been exasperated by the pandemic at 75 billion. So I think certainly it has something to do with it. I think the pandemic, what it did was it showed workers that ultimately the boss doesn't care about you. As sobering of a reality as that is for a lot of us to stomach, it is the truth. And I think for workers at Amazon to feel unprovided for 
uncared for in a moment that was very scary. I think uh, March of last year was the same time they were opening their doors. Uh, it was also obviously right as the pandemic was beginning. And to have to experience a lack of communication, a lack of feeling like uh, treated like a human because you don't know who your managers are, you answer to an app, but you have questions, right? You have questions about COVID and you have questions about what do I do because my daughter's school is canceled, but I have nobody to talk to. And you know now I'm getting pointed out and now I'm fired, right? And this was the reality for a lot of people. And I think certainly that fueled it for workers. But I would also say that for people in the South, really for people all over the country, for working people, this fight started before the pandemic. I think, you know, you can even go back to the West Virginia teacher strikes as sort of some of those signals where people have just had enough of working their lives away and having nothing to show for it at the end of it. Let's have a, a couple, maybe a final big picture questions from each of us. And uh, maybe I'll start, Amanda, and then turn it over to you. But one question for both of you here is take you back on big picture politics for a second. I think one of the challenges Democratic Party is dealing with, obviously politicians are dealing with, is the fact that there are a lot of people who've become cynical about government, cynical about politics, whether it can actually do anything to change your life. You're on the ground actually trying to change people's conditions and in a real way, practicing politics in the most local form. I wonder what kind of big takeaways you'd have to share with national leaders, political elected leaders who are thinking about how to talk to people in a real way, how to persuade them that politics matters, how to care about getting involved. What are some of the takeaways that you guys might want to share? Sure, I'll start there. I think for those that are in power right now that are looking at a lack of engagement, you know, you have to get down and get in the weeds. You've got to get down and talk to workers. You've got to get down and have conversations with working people. You've got to get down and, and go to the apartments and go to the homes where people are living. And as you asked earlier, find out what their day-to-day -day experience is. Because ultimately, until we regain that kind of connection with the working people and us forgot about people, you are going to continue to have that sentiment that politics don't matter to me. I'm just inspired, and I'm inspired because I was around some people that were brave enough to take a stand. And so um, I think big picture is like get in the weeds and let's go to war. And people know. They know when you're sincere. They know when you care. And you can't fake it. This is something that I've seen um, for a long time. I've seen politicians talk about issues and have a home run on what they can do. They show graphs and charts. And for me, the first foundation of getting things changed in one nation under God is it's a heart matter. You have to have a heart to really care about the people that you're going to lead. And for us is even when we met Josh them, we understood that their hearts were involved in hours together as uh, workers at Amazon. And for other people who want to run for office, you have to really get down and understand the people. And I think this is what has taught us and has shown people over the country that it wasn't just even though we had uh, people in politics to get involved, but it was regular people who really cared not just in Alabama, not just here in Birmingham and Bessemer, but regular people all over the country who stood out, who drove their vehicles uh, on the highways, who used their social media platforms to really get down and, and just like Josh said, get in the weeds, get in the dirt and really get on your feet, put the charts down and really come down and understand 
how the American people are really uh, living, how the working people are really suffering. And sometimes it, I feel like some of them understand, but they want to turn a blind eye to it and try to cover it up. But really understand that if we're all one nation under God, then we all should support each other and help dig those who are falling down in the quicksand and put a solid foundation that we'll all grow together and make this country a better place to live. Jennifer, I'm curious, what happens for you if you win and what happens for you if you lose? What happens for me um, when we win, I'm going to continue to fight. What happens with me when we lose, I'm going to continue to fight. <laughs> <laughs> You're awesome. Either way, um, because this has been, for me, it has been a heart matter for years. Mm -hmm. And the reason why my sister and mom always told me that you need to go into politics it's because I've, I've always questioned the, the very things that we're fighting about now, even on the jobs, even when we, when you own land, why do you continue to have to pay for it? You know, if you want to leave something to your children, what if your children don't have a job or they're unable to work and you say, you know what, I'm leaving. If I happen to leave here tomorrow, this is yours, but they have to continue to pay taxes on it. If you don't, then you'll find out who really owns it. You know, so some of these things are uh, questions that I've always had, like the local tax. Why is Amazon getting away with paying taxes and the people who are struggling to pay their bills have to pick up the tax and pay it? You know, the, the, the local um, officials know that. So I think at some point the people are over the, the middle class workers making deals and they're leaving out the heart, the mind the the sofas the living room is in the kitchen tables of the american people who really need the help and the support and for me it feels like they're taken away from them and without them looking when they turn their head to go to work you know i'm looking at my paycheck and something's missing so i believe a lot of them need to go back and rethink and sit down and ask god to change their hearts I think the foundation is the heart matter. Jennifer, count me in as a founding donor for Jennifer Bates for governor. I'm in. <laughs> you got a max out donation. <laughs> I'm telling you. Thank you both, Jennifer. Joshua, reminding the nation, actually, about the concept of solidarity, mm -hmm. that we're all in this together. Our fates are interlinked, and when we stand up together, we're stronger together. So yes. that's right. thank you for showing the way. Thank you. Thank you all for having us. Thanks so much to Jennifer Bass and Joshua Brewer for joining us on this episode of Battleground. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our assistant producer. And Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 